0: Is, uh, what sign, man?
1: What uh, sign? Somebody was holding up a, a sign I thought you might be interested. In. Yeah, there it is right over there. Oh,
0: bit, they, at least but they, they called
1: you man. a big whip. Yeah, well, that's
0: right. Well, let me tell you what. Even the signs can't worry me today. The people can't Feeling me good, today. huh? Baby, I feel great. What a super day for professional wrestling. And I got a little piece of film I'm going to show you very shortly.
1: From Television City in Hollywood, this podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com the only place to be in your pop culture world discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition greetings from Allentown is team in front of a live studio audience
2: Welcome to episode 156 of Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host, Peter Winson, And today, it's always a good time to go back to Memphis Wrestling, I don't care what year you might pick, although some are certainly better than others. (laughs) Like if I had picked 1993 or something, I I guess unless it's the Vince McMahon invasion, because that's kind of funny. But 1984, Memphis. I know I did an episode on this, eh, probably about six months ago, with Poffo Mania running wild, pile-driving Ricky Morton through a table. Well, I'm going to back it up a couple of months before that to April 28th, it be my birthday, 1984 Memphis Wrestling. There's a lot of fun stuff on this show. I had put it in my queue probably like a year ago because this video has been on YouTube for quite some time, and it was just a matter of time before I would get to it, and I've made a personal vow to myself to try to do more Memphis shows because they're fun, they're easy, especially the ones where you got Lance and Dave there because... Then I got no issues with the announcing. On the flip side, though, I do like shows that have announcers that entertain me from the other side of the perspective who people might not necessarily like. But before I get into the whole show, let me get in my plugs. You can email show Greetings at gmail.com, facebook.com slash Greetings from Allentown. Give me a follow on Twitter at GFAllentownPod. That is at GF Allentown Pod. And for the third anniversary of Greetings from Allentown, which apparently was on Saturday the 15th, I could not remember the exact date on it, and apparently what happened was when I posted the first show onto iTunes or SoundCloud, actually, I accidentally posted it on Wednesday rather than Thursday, and then from that point forward, I always posted it on a Thursday, except for the couple of times that I ran late and had to do it on a Friday, Always describing it like... Think of it as picking up the garbage a day late because there was a Monday holiday. And sure enough, there's a Monday holiday this week. But I'm assuming this show is going to be on time as I'm recording this actually on the Monday holiday. Which is technically by statute. And I'm not going to be that guy, okay? Because everybody hates that guy who, well, actually is everything. But the proper federal statute here in the United States is still technically Washington's birthday. It was never formally changed to President's Day. And I don't know how it ended up getting to that. I don't know if people had an issue with George Washington for the obvious reason. But at some point, they decided, well, we don't really care about Lincoln's birthday on February 12th, which was never really a holiday to begin with. It's not like I ever was off school for that because February school vacation here in Massachusetts is this week, which, by the way, it does mean that for the four days this week, probably an easier commute to work because more people would be on vacation. So kind of looking forward to that going forward, although as you listen to this, I will have enjoyed it for three days by that point. So I don't want to get myself all turned around. Before I forget, you may be listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Do check out the other great shows on Pro Wrestling Only. I know we had a strong style story drop over the weekend. Do check that out for all your New Japan Pro Wrestling needs. I don't know anything about it. All I do is make cracks about All Japan and back suplexes. And outside of that, I just defer to the experts on that sort of thing and I mentioned the three year anniversary of this podcast and if you've been following me on Twitter I've been posting the show images that I've been posting on SoundCloud all through that time And just kind of going over what, why I would have used that one and what it all means like the Yeti and the giant humping Hulk Hogan from the Monday Nitro that I covered about two years ago now Hopefully, I'll get through that at some point, or at least by the end of this month. That would be nice. By my calculations, there's now 12 days left in February as I record this, and I have about 100 more to go, which means I guess I'd have to post seven or eight of them a day. So I, I may end up just start doing them in bunches, but that's been a lot of fun to look back and reflect. The problem is I, have <laughs> I wanted to put together a compilation of, of all the times that I've played the More You Know drop, and, and you, you know what it is. But stupid me, not planning ahead, didn't compile them as I was going along. So I think from this point forward, I should do that. Because i just, I feel like I could comp, compilate all of, is that even a word? Put them all together for, for like 50 minutes as just have a The More You Know. And I would like to remember exactly what it was that I said for for these. So I think from this point forward, and if I go back and listen to an old show for reference, maybe I'll make a note of the timestamp. So I guess lesson is, kids, if you're going to start a podcast, plan ahead your stuff so that you might be able to do an easy compilation someday. All right, that's enough meta-material podcasting about the podcast for one week. One thing that came up over this weekend, I was at a place called Democracy Brewing in Boston, which is perfectly fine, although I don't really care for the seating arrangement where you're at kind of picnic-style tables and you're across from the person that you're with if you're in a group of two, so you're kind of like right up against a stranger. It's not quite picnic tables because they have individual chairs, but... In any event, it kind of gave me the thought, and I'd never really considered this the, the the idea of being a tourist in the city of Boston and being a tourist in you know wherever you're from listening to this podcast like tourists come into your city now it's one thing if you live in New York, if you live in London like the for whatever reason, I don't think of Boston as this tourist place so the the, the man and his wife next to us were up from northern Louisiana which I thought was interesting, and but even more so. They're like, well, why did you come to Boston, we asked, and they said, oh, it was cheap. And I'm thinking, how the hell is it cheap to come to Boston around this point? And apparently, they wanted to go skiing, but it's much cheaper to actually just go to the city and fly here because it's impossible to get it. You'd have to rent a car to get up to Vermont and new hampshire and maine to like the good ski areas i didn't tell him that you could take the commuter rail out to wachusett and go to that ski area but hey you know there was only so much i could get in so we're kind of like my wife and i were were tourist guides for these people like oh you can go here 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 we thought okay well we were going to recommend breweries but this guy his wife's sitting across from from, he's sitting next to me and across from him and she apparently I, I wouldn't say she was like a wet blanket she's like oh I don't drink beer and I know it's okay well she's drinking root beer That that's fine uh, who knows she probably has her reasons and this actually went on and on for like other things like oh well she doesn't like that kind of food And th- this went for, like I, I felt like this could be like a 10 minute bit of like where we just suggest stuff and it gets shot down because the guy's wife can't abide by any of it But I guess they they took the train up to Salem to do all that witch trials sort of stuff. And again, something that I'm so close to it for most of my life, I don't really think of it as a tourist attraction. But if you were to come in here, yes, I understand why going up there would, would have some appeal to it. I just wish that the public transit in Boston was a little bit more reliable, than it actually is if you're taking the commuter rail up to Salem on the weekend. I think you're only getting a train once every two hours, so you really have to plan things out well. So, I don't know. I never really thought of Boston from a tourist perspective. It's just too close to the entire thing. And I, I just remembered that many of you listening to this podcast, well, I don't know how many, may be coming to Boston for SummerSlam in... August, which I know the tickets go on sale for that, the night that SmackDown is here next week on the 28th, which I will not be attending because I'm going to Long Island the next morning for the Boston Bruins-New York Islanders game, and I'm not going to stay out the night before, even if John Cena is making his return, thankfully, because at least you can count on him to give us a good segment for eight, nine minutes or whatever, and it's not any of this... Bray Wyatt bullcrap that uh, I've already said enough about Bray Wyatt and I, I don't like to do a lot of complaining about the modern product on the show so I'm going to keep my lips zipped about TakeOver Portland because I had a number of issues that are not even more over Renalo related that let's just say there were many spots in that first match between Keith Lee who I, love, I should love and I loved his spot in the Royal Rumble. I talked about that several episodes ago. Him and Dijak, I don't know what his long name is. I don't, I'm don't. i not, not going to say it because I don't even know. Like, I, I have no idea what it is. But a number of problems. Like, Do we really have to have a big man match that goes 21 minutes? And do we have to have a suplex on the floor spot after four minutes? I mean, for God's sakes... What happened to the NXT that I used to know with Dusty Rhodes running things? Ever since he passed away, now we get Sean Michaels, and all I have to say, just three words: Fuck Sean Michaels, fuck him in the f-K ass, Sean Michaels. NXT sucks because of fucking Sean Michaels. Fuck that guy. Alright, that actually felt good and I feel a little bit better. Although, I don't want to turn this into the Rip Shawn Michaels podcast after the story Keithy told me a couple of weeks ago about how Sean acknowledged him at a house show in 1993 after Keithy yelled something positive to him. So, I think I'll lay off him for the rest of the show after all. It's Memphis 1984, for God's sakes. I should, I should be feeling good. And we don't even have Jerry Lawler on this show. So, there's a lot of fun stuff. Memphis 1984 is like... The greatest small market baseball team of all time. And this is after the trade was done with Mid-South wrestling, where you think, well, Mid-South got all the good guys. They got the Midnight Express, the Rock and Roll Express, all these other people, Bill Dundee, coming in to book. But here's the Memphis roster at this point is just even if you go beyond Jerry Law, who, like I said, he's not here. It's always interesting to do the Memphis shows where Lawler is, although he is going to be referenced in one of the first few promos. Randy Savage, Rick Rude, Coco Beware, Jim the Anvil Nightheart etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of them get poached by the World Wrestling Federation, who I guess would be the New York Yankees in this analogy. It makes sense of the New York Territory. And call Memphis... The Tampa Bay Rays, a team in a small market where the attendance numbers haven't necessarily been good. I'm not saying that you know Memphis was at all like that in 1984 for Mid-South Coliseum uh, attendance or whatever, but, but the Tampa Bay Rays actually probably should move to Tennessee, probably Nashville. <laughs> that would actually work out, although Montreal seems to be more the buzz on that. And Vince McMahon is sort of like George Steinbrenner. So to go back to the four guys that I named... All four of them worked out in some way in the WWF. I mean, they went up there and they did their roles particularly well. And I haven't even gotten to Jimmy Hart. Memphis Jimmy Hart. A little bit different than what you'd see in the WWF for reasons that I'll get into when he does his little promo. And he's the linchpin on that heel side. The one who holds together the family of heels. Of course, they're called the first family. Now, all four of those guys actually are first family members, and we're going to see them because Jimmy Hart gives a little bit of a pep talk to them, which is a fascinating segment to me, just kind of going around the locker room. But Memphis 1984, certainly a fun year. You can dip in at any point in time i think earlier i i did in the middle of the summer i think it was july 14th 84 because that was the day of black saturday and i always kind of want to see oh what was going on in other territories around that point i don't really need to know i don't need to do that black saturday show where freddie miller shows it up and throws it to vince mcmahon shocking everybody across the south that people have done that one to death what was going on in the awa well (laughs) <laughs> the AWA still had Heenan at that point so they were certainly holding on but down a little bit maybe from where they once were but Memphis 1984 just on this show and I could not remember the exact reasons why I had put this on my list on my queue for future shows to potentially do and then when I saw that Randy Savage was in the first match like, oh yeah that's right Randy Savage anywhere is just perfect for this podcast because as, as a TV worker I'll, I'll, I'll get into all that when we see his match we get the fabulous ones as well now when they're promoting the fabulous ones I thought oh great now we get Steven Stan it's great well unfortunately because it is later in 1984 Memphis or a specific point in time in the springtime of 1984 the fabulous ones not the ones these are not the fabulous ones we're looking for <laughs> this is sort of a Jedi mind trick the PYT Express of which Coco Ware is one half alongside Norvell Austin they're in action and we got a six man match an eight man match so you a lot of people out on the show, including one job guy who does double duty randomly, which I just loved for many different reasons. Memphis is just so great. I love Lance and Dave. We don't even need Lawler on this show. That's how good things are. So why don't I get to it? Memphis Wrestling, April 28th, 1984.
1: Opening day of the baseball season. There's been several games played during the afternoon. The Tigers opening here in just a couple of moments everything that happened in Florida Al is forgotten and I know they want to forget a few things that happened down there well as I mentioned George they did
2: not play well in spring training uh, but nobody was really overly concerned that was Al Kaline and George Kell of the Detroit Tigers telecast bringing us into the 1984 season and it's amusing to look back apparently the 84 Tigers were lousy in spring training, but eh, we're not too worried about any of it, and rightfully so. I guess it's a lesson for anybody whose team may suck in spring training, which will be beginning shortly in Major League Baseball. The '84 Tigers, one of the greatest single season teams of all time, they won their first nine games, then they won, they lost one, and then won seven in a row. And through 40 games, their record was 35 and five and they ended up winning the World Series that year. They're already eight and a half games up in the division by the start of Memorial Day weekend. Uh, Don't panic about your team if they stink in the spring, unless, of course, you're a Baltimore Orioles fan like me, and you're filled with glee because they're actually playing well in the Grapefruit League like they did last year, and you know it's the only time they'll be near the top of the standings. Baseball, baseball, baseball. Yeah, it's probably enough 1984 baseball talk for one show. Unless you're a Tigers fan, because they're just as bad as the Orioles. In fact, they were worse than Baltimore last year. It's kind of something that nobody really talks about. So we get the proper Lance and Dave introduction as they run down what's going to be on the show. And Jimmy Hart marches out. We actually heard part of it in the cold open intro. And as I said, Jimmy Hart is the same guy. He looks the same. Maybe the glasses are a little bit darker. Or so, I can't really put my finger on but he's certainly less cartoony, a little bit more serious villainy in Memphis wrestling. And he announces that it's a beautiful day here. But he also, it's a good news, bad news scenario. And as, whenever people do that, they always like to do the bad news first because then you can soften it with the good news right afterwards. And the bad news, goes back to something that had been going on and is very famous in memphis wrestling for the previous oh two years
0: two things happened this week in my life one very tragic and one very positive and very happy the, the sad thing and i think you've got a little clip of this on the on the bulletin board now if you'll show it a very close and personal friend of mine andy kaufman is dying of cancer i know you laugh about it go ahead you laugh you people are sick andy kaufman
2: Odds are you're probably aware of the Andy Kaufman and Memphis wrestling connection with Lawler and the appearance of the Letterman show with the fight and the pile driver and him wrestling women. I mean, it's all in the movie Man in the Moon starring Jim Carrey which came out around 99 or 2000 a movie that I saw in the theater but then later rented it from a video store twice when I was living in Virginia and failed to watch it both times because I just didn't make it a priority and I don't know why I remember it for that movie but it's just the fact that I rented it twice and then never bothered to actually watch it before having to return it to the store So Andy Kaufman had come in as this Hollywood, your classic Hollywood heel. Think Hollywood rock from 2003 as sort of a more modern example. And he would challenge the women in the audience and he would wrestle them and he would win and he would just kind of keep this going for a while until Lawler comes out, pile-drives him, and then he's selling a neck injury for a while. That That's kind of the Cliff's Notes version of it. And Kaufman would turn up on Memphis television through 82 and into, I think, November of 1983 is the last time we see him. I haven't been able to find any episodes with Andy Kaufman actually in, like, the WMC studio or whatever. I would love to do that with the exception of the fact that I don't like Andy Kaufman as a comedian at all like I don't understand what his point it, it's basically the kind of comedy that he would do which I, I never have really found all that funny which makes me wonder why did I want to see Man in the Moon well probably because of the wrestling connection at that time it, his gaslight comedy it's like I don't know I guess it would make sense in this era in social media and all that but for, for that it, gaslight comedy kind of sucks I don't enjoy it in any sort of way I'd like to remove myself from reality If I'm watching a comedy show Not have some dude Ooh, he's so freaking edgy On any event, he gets diagnosed with lung cancer Which is interesting in that He was not a <laughs> smoker And you'd associate lung cancer with smoking And he would actually be dead Within three weeks of this Or so the story goes Oh, he faked his own death And then we'll come No, he, Andy Kaufman's dead he, He's not coming back he would have come back by now. If he was faking his own death, he would have come back by now because this would have been the perfect times for his brand of what I'm calling gaslight comedy. But now, Jimmy Hart, who clearly has some sort of association with him, is going to make, just very casually, I I, I would say, a serious charge against Jerry Lawler, who I said is not here, making a charge against him for how Kaufman ended up in the state that he's in with cancer
0: the man who can't sleep at night is Jerry Lawler. How can Jerry Lawler go to bed at night thinking about what he did to this man because everybody knows five ways of cancer baby, five ways and the number one way of catching cancer is when you get a bruise or or, a lump on you man, that's cancer and he's got cancer of the brain and that is caused from that pile driver that Jerry Lawler, don't go all Jimmy you know it's caused about it, because of the pile driver Lawler, you gave Andy Kaufman cancer and he is dying baby and that is the fact.
2: Jimmy Hart just coming out casually accusing the top star in Memphis Wrestling of either manslaughter or involuntary manslaughter. I think I would line this up with involuntary manslaughter because the action contributed, according to Jimmy Hart's medical science, to to him getting cancer. I'm not a cancer researcher by any means. I mean I know that there's a lot of good work going on in the city of boston about 40 minutes to the south of me but for god's sakes i'm pretty sure that even by 1984 that sort of stuff was debunked but yeah i know heels lie and all, all that sort of stuff i can't imagine can you imagine if it was like new jack that he was accusing of this like it was new jack it's jerry lawler new jack would have had like a completely different reaction to that
3: i say i did it a lot of times
2: I'm not sure that qualifies as bad news Oh, unfunny comedian is dying Uh, Okay, I'll try to be human about all of this But what is the happier note that Jimmy Hart has?
0: Big Joe LaDuke, baby, is on his way back. Let me tell you something. Eddie Marlin, Mr. Tight Pocket, the big man of professional wrestling, he thought he was going to throw a curveball at Jimmy Hart because he thinks Jimmy Hart can't hit curves. But, baby, I can hit anything. So what I did, I got me a good attorney. I got me a good lawyer. And you know what he found out right here in the paper came in the mail yesterday afternoon? You can't refuse a wrestler or anybody else his right to work. And that's exactly what Eddie Marlin tried to do with the help of Jerry Lawler. So all those petitions y'all signed didn't do a bit of good, baby, because Joe LaDuke is on his way Way back and it will be payback time for you Hold jerry up. the king lawler
2: that's the good news i'm just sort of shrugging my shoulders like okay whatever you say jimmy joe Leduc, he was actually part of the other memphis episode i thought about doing for this week which is from june of 86 where he just gets pissed at paul diamond and shaves his head on on the set for some reason oh yeah i know another hair angle i was shocked that i would do one of those but what i find humorous is jimmy hart is going through this and this is something you only get from Memphis Wrestling Is Lance is out in front of the desk interviewing Jimmy And Jimmy is kind of standing in front of Dave And as he's going through this Dave has to maintain a straight face behind him Like he's the Vice President or Speaker of the House When the State of the Union is going on It doesn't appear that Dave is ripping up any speeches Or any scripts or whatever in the background As some sort of theatric So, okay, Joe Leduc's coming in Great news, I guess but what I'm wondering is his right to work. Now, that has to do with labor laws. And when we get into all that, there's plenty of ground you can cover in wrestling. So it makes me wonder because Tennessee is a right to work state that you cannot be refused you know, employment because of an association generally with a trade union. Which made me wonder, is the First Family actually a labor union? <laughs> is is Jimmy Hart actually Jimmy Hoffa in this case? Do they actually provide health insurance as part of this union? Maybe we should get Bix on the case. I have no idea what, what's going on here with the First Family. Might be why they were so successful for so many years. You're like, hey, how, how could this heel group have health insurance? Well, the comparison that I would make historically is back in I think it's Al Capone's Day in Chicago Murder Incorporated Bruce Springsteen has a song about Murder Incorporated but the actual guys the hitmen not Bret Hart they actually were given health insurance which is funny because you think it would be an ultra high risk profession being you know part of like a mob thing but they actually got health insurance back in the 20s or whenever that was but Jimmy Hart he okay so he he's not done yet cuz he's got a video and that this is actually what he's talking about at the end of the intro that he's got a video and he's given a pep talk to members of the first family and what you see in this locker room is a bunch of guys who are going to become megastars on the WWF stage at some point in the future it's going to vary i mean Randy Savage who would be the very next year in 1985 Rick Rude not till 87 Jim the Anvil Nightheart comes in in '85. Doesn't really start to make his mark until late '86 when the Hart Foundation are on that tag team title track, and Coco Ware is there as one half of the Pyts as well. But this the speech that he gives here. You'd think it was coming from somebody like Paul Heyman before an ECW pay-per-view. He's just trying to fire up his guys.
0: You know, guys, the reason I've called this meeting, I'll be perfectly honest with you, this is the first time in the history of the professional wrestling family of the family, baby, in five and a half years that we don't have any championships. Look at you, Oxbaker. Baker. It's no good. Look at you, man. 325 pounds, three, right? You, you need to finish the job on Dutch Mantel. I mean, you started it. You put him out for a couple of yeah, weeks. But yeah, like we want him out permanently. Permanently. You know what I'm trying yeah. to say? The PYT Express look at you baby superstars in professional wrestling you've got the speed you've got the ability you've got the look you've got everything it takes there's only one thing standing in our way from a world championship title match and that's the fabulous one who have stole our belt well baby we want to get those belts back at any cost randy savage the first time in the history that i've known you that you don't have any kind of belt yeah. i mean you're a superstar you are a superstar in wrestling you know it i know it and the people know it But do you realize we have no belts at all? We've got to get one at all costs. Neidhart, former Oakland Raiders, Dallas Cowboy football player, right? Look at the Oakland image. Look at their image. The bad boy is a football man. We need to keep that image with you here, baby. We need to start ripping some heads off. Now, are we going to do that? You're right, You've right. got to believe we are. Look at Rick Rude here. Rick, look at you. Your head's down. You're wearing a dress. Get that camera you're out of here. you got all the people laughing at you. The rednecks are going to be laughing. They're making fun of you, and they're making fun of Jimmy Hart and the family. Now, what are we going to do about it? We're going to start getting even with some people, aren't we? Anybody that you face in the ring, we're going to start hurting. Am I right or wrong? So, man, we've got, basically what I'm trying to tell you is this, without stumbling and bumbling around here. Can we want to get off. Right on. Pack up our tent, and we can leave, or we can start
2: so you know those guys sitting around it actually answered a question that i had many months ago when i did the macho man's bachelor party from primetime wrestling in 1991 like macho and coco seemed awfully close and i dubbed coco the fourth mega power and they must have had some sort of tie back to memphis and here it is they're both members of the first family in 1984 so that, that's where they get their friendship from. And they're certainly a family. Like, in sort of the way that Heenan's group was in the WWF, how we'd always insist on them being the Heenan family. Always correct Gorilla when he would say stable. Like, a stable is for horses. Like, Slick. I can't picture Slick doing this speech to his guys because... It's, almost, it's like a weird collection of people, like the Big Boss Man and Boris Zukov. do they ever have anything to do with each other? They're not like members of a family like these guys, they're not interconnected in the same way, but it was a hell of a speech by Jimmy Hart. Trying to fire up Rick Rude. I could not see what was going on with him. And this provided a great surprise for me later in the show. Because I didn't investigate too closely. It just looked like he had lost confidence like Paul Ohndorff in 1995. Interesting that I would connect those two guys. But he had been losing to Austin Idol at this point. And apparently one of them might have been a stipulation match. But hearing this speech, this fired up Jimmy Hart speech... Kind of made me think of the movie Any Given Sunday and The speech that Al Pacino gives To his Miami Sharks I'm trying to like picture Jimmy Hart As the coach of the Miami Sharks Doing the same speech in that movie
4: I don't know what to say baby Three minutes in the biggest battle of our professional lives baby All comes down to today baby And either we heal as a team baby Or we're gonna crumble baby Inch by inch baby Play by play baby Until we're finished baby We're in hell right now baby Believe me We could stay there, baby, get the shit kicked out of us, baby, or we could fight our way back into the light, baby. We can climb out of hell, baby, one inch at a time. Now I can't do it for you, baby. I'm too old. I look around, baby. I see these young faces and I think, I mean, baby, I've made every wrong choice a middle-aged man can make, baby. I've pissed away all my money, believe it or not, baby. I chased off anyone who's ever loved me, baby. And lately, I can't even stand the face I see in the mirror, baby. You know, when you get old in life, baby, things get taken from you, baby. I mean, that's that's part of life, baby. But if you only learn that you start losing stuff, baby, you find out life's this game of inches. So is football, baby. Because in either game, life or football, baby, the margin for error is so small, baby. I mean, one half of a step too late or too early, baby, and you don't quite make it. One half second too slow, baby, too fast, and you don't quite catch it, baby. The inches we need are everywhere around us, baby. They're in the break of every game, every minute, every second, baby, on this team, in this family. We fight for that inch, baby. On this team, in this family, we tear ourselves and everyone else around us to pieces for that inch, baby. We claw with our fingernails for that inch, baby. Because we know when we add up all those inches, baby, that's gonna make the fucking difference between winning and losing, baby. Between living and dying, baby. I'll tell you this, baby. In any fight, it's the guy who's willing to die who's gonna win that inch, baby. And I know if I'm gonna live my life anymore because I'm still willing to fight and die for that inch, baby. Because that's what living is. The six inches in front of your face, baby. Now, I can't make you do it baby you've got to look at the guy next to you look into his eyes baby now i think you're going to see a guy who will go that inch with you baby you're gonna see a guy who will sacrifice himself for this team baby because he knows when it comes down to it you're gonna do the same for him baby that's a family gentlemen and either we heal out now as a family or we die as individuals baby that's wrestling baby that's all it is baby now what are you gonna do baby
2: Hmm, I'm going to have to throw the challenge flag on that one and say that Pacino's is probably better for the football environment because I don't think a head coach in football could say baby that many times in two minutes and actually have it come off the way he wants it to. And
3: up in the ring, his opponent just steps in right now. It's going to be a one-ball, 10-minute time limit match introducing from Liverpool, England, the 222-pound Scott Shannon. And going against him, 235-pound Sarasota, Florida, the Macho Man, Randy.
2: Kind of weird to see pre-NWO Randy Savage coming out to something other than Pomp and Circumstance, a little pop disco beat. I, I couldn't quite pick up on what the song was. He's there with Jimmy Hart and Angelo Poffo, his father, who's carrying a sign of some sort. We never actually get to see what the sign says. <laughs> Maybe he thinks it's the Attitude Era and everybody's going to bring signs to the... To the, to the WMC studio or however it's gonna work. He's taking on Scott Shannon. And this is not the Scott Shannon who is a DJ on WCBS FM in New York and has been for quite some time. Although the age, well, I guess Scott Shannon the wrestler would be about 12 to 13 years younger than him. This is actually Scott McGee. Not to be confused with Tom McGee. But Scott McGee was sometimes a WWF job guy later in the 1980s he is actually from England and there actually was a handful of Randy Savage Scott McGee matches in the WWF including October of 85 at the Boston Garden which aired on Nesson and on the February 3rd 1986 edition of Primetime Wrestling which of course is not on the WWE Network because I think they only started with the April 28th 86 show because that's when Bobby Heenan is the host, and you don't have the complications of Jesse Ventura being there, and you know there might be a lawsuit in the offing if that gets put up. So Savage, I alluded to this in the intro, greatest TV match guy of all time. Yes, there might be greater overall wrestlers, but in terms of, okay... You got six to eight minutes to go out there against a quasi name opponent or you got to squash this guy in three minutes. Nobody makes better use of the time than Randy Savage. He does. He's so incredibly efficient. And this is a point that I've made on the place to be podcast. Whenever Savage has been on a Saturday night's main event, he's going to get a limited amount of time and he's going to make the absolute most out of all of it. So that, and that pep talk from Jimmy Hart clearly must have paid off because he attacks early that's what the announcers speculate is that maybe that pep talk had an effect tosses mcgee i mean shannon to the outside and double axe handle from the top rope to the floor so you're seeing that high spot in the wmc studios back up top double axe handle inside the ring this time and i'm getting the impression just sort of watching this that Top rope moves are banned in Memphis. But everything that I've ever read and ever seen is that they're not banned. It, it's just that it was strange in this case that they seem to be going out of their way, both Angelo Puffo and Jimmy Hart, to distract the referee whenever Randy Savage would go to the top rope. So I, I don't know. I, I was very confused here for a second. I kind of had the detour. We get a delayed vertical suplex, more of a Davy Boy Smith move, and kind of funny seeing the Macho Man pull that out of the arsenal. It goes for the pinfall, but that is only a two-count. As we go back, and the referee once again is distracted as savage goes back up to the top rope figure okay well this is where he hits the big elbow mash over he misses the elbow off the top rope i was definitely not expecting to see that especially since this was lining up pretty much like a total squash and shannon fires up hits an inverted atomic drop but now jimmy hart once again up on the apron and Hart is carrying a cane with him. Maybe it's Angelo's pa- Angelo Angelo Papo's cane that he just sort of had. Hart gets manhandled a little bit by Scott Shannon. Comes over, hits him. Cane falls into the ring. Savage hits him. Hits him as everybody, as the referee has his back turned, and that is how he picks up the three count. Which is really strange to me that in a two and a half minute match, for the first two minutes, it's going to be a complete squash. Then you're going to allow. He misses the big elbow, a little bit of offense, and then he's going to have to cheat to win. I don't know. It just just seems really, really strange. But Randy Savage TV matches, because of how good he is, how efficient he is, and how much stuff he gets in, without it ever making it seem like he's one of those modern independent guys of, quote-unquote, got to get my shit in, he never feels like that. It's always compelling when he's out there. So we go to Lance Russell, and we get promos for the Evansville show on May the 2nd all the other ones of these are cut off as we get Jimmy Hart he's kind of like a little bit into the screen so you see who Lance is going to be interviewing as he kind of runs down what's going to be on the card Austin Idol and Rick Rude in an I quit cage match sounds very interesting to me and Jerry Lawler teaming with Eddie Marlin to take on Joe Leduc and Jimmy Hart, who will be donning the tights. He, he donned the tights a lot more frequently in Memphis than you might think. In the WWF, it, there was a period in 1986, around the time when Terry Funk kind of skipped town, where Jimmy Hart was teaming with Dory and sometimes Jimmy Jack in Six Mans. And that was really kind of the extent of Jimmy Hart as a wrestler in the WWF. I know he won some battle royal at MSG from hiding outside the ring. Thank God we've never seen that spot three billion times since then.
0: You know how many times have I come out and said this is the greatest night of my life, but it will be the greatest night of my life. I am not out here screaming and yelling because I am so excited about this. You know Eddie Marlin. You know he got with the lawyer, and they said we're going to get rid of Joliet Duke once and for all. They tried to suspend him. They tried to get rid of him forever. But baby, I have attorneys too, and my attorneys found a little loophole. And you know what it said? Yeah, you no. cannot refuse anybody the right to work. And so Big Jola Duke is on his way back, Eddie Marlin. Now I know what you got in mind. You've got in mind for Jerry Lawler to beat poor Jola Duke down. And drag him over to you, you can slap him around, but it's not going to work that way, baby. It's going to be the other way around. We're going to pin you, beat you, we're going to do everything to you we can, and you'll never show your face anywhere again. How do you like that, Eddie? Come here, Ricky, baby.
2: So apparently, Rick Rude is there as well. And I like this combination of Jimmy Hart and Rick Rude. Kind of makes me wonder in the WWF, maybe you should have had Jimmy Hart and Rick Rude as that combination rather than Heenan and Rude. I know everybody. Heenan's guys, you know, there's a certain attachment like, oh, Heenan was great with everybody, but apparently Rick Rude didn't really care for Bobby Heenan as his manager. Of course, he might not have cared for Jimmy Hart either, especially the WWF version who was a little bit more cartoonish, as I've said before, maybe Rude would have been turned off by that. But he's got a satin jacket on here, and you know how much I love those, but he does seem to be... A little confused about the stipulation for the cage match with austin idol where one guy is going to announce i quit or maybe there's a pinfall and they have to get up and say i quit at the end of it (laughs) yeah he seems really confused as to how to win this match
3: before the i can't believe take a look at this i I can't even show my beautiful body off anymore you have a you got got a question for you lance all right how the heck is Austin Idol going to say he quits when I pull his tongue right out of that fat throat of his?
1: Well, uh, we're going to be looking forward to the action coming up on Wednesday night. You don't think Idol is going to stand there and just let you do whatever you want. Somebody is going to say, I quit, in front of
3: everybody gathered. I it? won't let him say I quit. I'll beat him till he can't say anything. Uh, well,
1: We'll see Wednesday night just who is going to be saying I quit some
2: classic lance russell just gently reminding rude hey you can't win the i quit match if the guy can't talk so don't be ripping out any tongues you know you're not going to be able to actually prevail in this one if you go ahead with your plan rick rude was very green in mid-south and maybe kind of an afterthought when he was sent to memphis but clearly Jarrett knew exactly what to do with this guy because well yeah he's still apparently a little bit green in the ring in fact His first year in the WWF, I don't even think he's all that good as an in-ring guy. But when he gets to Memphis in 1984, they certainly have a very good idea of how to use him, how to portray him, the character, and how to make it all work. So that trade, while it seems a little bit lopsided because you have the Midnights and the Rock and Rolls going in the other direction, it's not completely terrible because, once again, Memphis makes something out of what seems like nothing. I literally just got done praising Memphis for making something out of nothing well this is the flip side of that where they are taking something and making it nothing by saying oh we got the fabulous ones coming up and it just turns out to be Eddie Gilbert and Tommy Rich and believe me I like Eddie Gilbert plenty but putting him in this spot where he's the new version of something and Tommy Rich it it makes no sense to me because he had been in memphis some three four years before this so it's not like it's some new act that they're rolling out and they tried they had jackie fargo come out and give his endorsement to it and kind of lightly bury the fabulous ones as they were on their way out going to the awa going elsewhere to you know go make some money or whatever but it wasn't going to work because you're taking something and pretending like, oh, well, this is the new big thing. There was a blog post about this that I came across in my research comparing it with new Coke, and that's a very good comparison. <laughs> it kind of lasted about the same amount of time as well, that no matter what talents you throw out there, Eddie Gilbert, Tommy Ridge, both very successful at various points in their career, it's not Steven Stan, so it's not going to work. As they're coming down to the ring, though, they're kind of looking a lot like what the Fantastics would look like. So maybe the Fantastics were ripping off the Fabulous Ones in some way, but they got away with it. You know why? Because they were called the Fantastics, and they were their own thing. Now, Gilbert and Rich are actually the Southern tag team changes. This would be the AWA Southern tag team belts, which looking up the belt history for that is so hysterical because there's, like, 450 title changes in, like, a 20-year span. (laughs) I'm not exaggerating about this either. I mean, just go ahead and look it up. Eddie... Was just in the WWF. I've mentioned how he had kind of a nothing Piper's Pit appearance. Eddie Gilbert and Roddy Piper at the same place at the same time. In 1984, the definition of it sounds better than it actually was because Eddie had not found his voice at all yet. And Tommy Rich, he had the feud with Buzz Sawyer down in in Georgia. That the last battle of Atlanta is about six months in the rearview mirror at this point. But Tommy Rich is like one of those guys where a lot of the high points in his career came fairly early and then he has this lengthy career afterwards, so he might be thought of as disappointing, course he had some you know personal issues and all that sort of stuff but he's an nwa champion at a very young age he has the legendary feud with sawyer and then after that you kind of struggle like okay well what are you what are you going to do at, at this point
3: i heard uh you know we talked to jackie fargo you know he give us a little pep talk jimmy hart he said keep doing what you're doing tcb take care of business so hard just like i said you bring them all on bring rick root in his little dress we won't know whether to dance or fight him but bring him on down it don't matter you bring anybody in your family you want to bring because just like we said with these people behind us and jackie fargo telling us what to do we're gonna be here a long time
2: sorry i don't really have a movie comparison ready for what jackie fargo's pep talk would have been because we're not actually seeing it But yeah, passing off these two guys as a better version of what the fans had gleefully experienced over the previous couple of years. A a pretty terrible idea. Any way you slice it. And by the way, they're facing off against Keith Roberson and Pat Hutchinson. It's it, kind of tough with the intros on this show, as Dave is going to point out a little bit later. Gilbert and Hutchinson start out with a lot of mat wrestling. So looks like Eddie Gilbert picked up some lessons from that Bob Backlund angle where they had. Where Backlund, when, when Eddie Gilbert came back from the car crash, Backlund took him under his wing and was showing him like mat wrestling. And I think I went over this during an All-American episode, which I think was episode 31, November of 83, where Backlund had him in a dungeon, so to speak, and he was kind of yelling in that sort of that way that they always try to make you envision where it's Stu Hart's dungeon and Stu is stretching guys and, you know, he'd have these horrible screams. It was was sort of like that, I think. But Rich ends up tagging and locks in a boring 1980s-style armbar I noticed that Tommy Rich is pulling some hair here, or at least that's what I'm picking up on. Very strange that he's doing that in this type of match. Eddie gets back in. He gets caught in the other corner. Roberson is in. He gets overwhelmed immediately. But when Eddie tags in Tommy Rich, you get a slam and a standing leg drop, (laughs) and then another back elbow because I swear to God, after I pointed this out either last week or the week before, how is it back elbows in every friggin' match? I'm going to notice it now going forward as Gilbert gets in, and you're not going to believe it, but he throws a back elbow as well. Like what the hell? Why? Why is it? It's because it's the easiest move to do in wrestling. You just throw a guy. All he's got to know how to do is run the ropes and then you know not hit himself too hard on the guy's arm. Probably easier even than a clothesline. Eddie locks in he's sleeper hold. ...for the victory here. Interesting dynamic where... uh, ...I was talking about the hair... ...and Tommy Rich pulling hair... ...seemed like he was coming across as a heel... ...and Eddie Gilbert is coming across... ...as a baby face... ...which is an interesting dynamic... ...although the irony of this is that... ...once this fails after a couple of months... ...Gilbert is the one who gets turned on... ...by Rich who becomes the heel in this case. Now, I think Tommy was a heel in Memphis during his previous run. I think it was 80 or so. And then, of course, famously, he's a heel in 87, ended up giving Jerry Lawler, I, I don't want to say a haircut. It was really more of a bit of a trim with that cage match. I believe that was episode either 90 or 91. Do check that out in the archives. So this is brief. At least this new Fabulous Ones, yeah, it didn't work, but at least they cut it off fairly quickly, about a three-month span. And why, although it certainly helped, I think that the original Fabs decided to come home to Memphis and the imitation would go by the wayside.
1: A guy who is a friend of Dutch that we got a little piece of action on here, I I, I want to show everybody gets a kick out of seeing it. Uh, Bugsy McGraw, let's take a look at some action of
2: Bugsy. greetings from Allentown Cannon. We've met Bugsy McGraw on a couple of occasions, 1982 World Class, where he was very, very weird and entertaining children out in the crowd, as I recall. I mean, that might have been from the WorldCast podcast as well. But, yeah, he's a little strange there. So, naturally, he would turn up in Jim Crockett Promotions in 1983 and help out Jimmy Valiant, where somehow Jimmy would become the low-key guy in the team. (laughs) and Bugsy McGraw like those two guys if if any two guys were deserved to be a tag team with each other or made to be a team it's Bugsy McGraw and Jimmy Valiant in the year 1983 so he has the run there after world class in 82 a brief run in the second quarter of 1984 in Memphis and they play this video because it is 1984 and you have to play music videos it's the height of that craze But this one is to the Curly Shuffle, so you're not getting any sort of, you know, big rock song. You're not getting any thriller like we're going to hear with the PYTs a little bit later. But the interesting thing to me about Bugsy McGraw in 1984, you see this character on TV doing all this goofy stuff, and where was he right before he comes in for this little brief run in Memphis? He's working all Japan! (laughs) In, the, in April of 84 and he's working singles matches against Stan Hansen and Jumbo Saruta um like f- first of all I had to stop what I was doing to see if I could find those matches on YouTube I didn't look too hard but I couldn't find them Bugsy McGraw versus Stan Hansen in the year of our lord 1984 I want to see that I want to see him versus Jumbo I mean Oh, please, please tell me that exists on tape somewhere, because I, I have to see how Bugsy McGraw is. And it's, they showed the footage of him, and he's doing a lot of funny stuff, you know, shuffling around the ring, which is why they play the curly shuffle for him. And it is kind of funny. I mean, I'm glad that now I appreciate the humorous aspects of professional wrestling, and I'm not just some humorless shrew who only cares about the work rate of his friends cough cough gee i wonder who i'm talking about in that one but yeah i guess he's dutch mantel's friend and so we got dutch bringing him in so of course he he's out next dutch for a little chat (laughs) <laughs> uh, i'm gonna let him say his piece but where he was around this time was also very interesting to me
0: yeah i've been gone for a little while i guess you wonder where i've been and i wondered where you've been you want to know where i've been
2: uh, i want you i'm to not
0: going to tell you lance because it's a secret and if i oh. told you then you know
2: it's not clear to me why dirty dutch is being so circumspect about where he was exactly but i mean i guess we could turn it into a game where do you think dutch mantel was
1: He's the answer japan Actually it is
2: oh, I guess that's not so outlandish. I mean after all, he brought Bugsy McGraw in Bugsy was working all Japan so you think okay well, Dudge, dodge he must have been he must have been working all uh, all Japan as well no he was working UWF the shoot style promotion, which yes, not the Bill Watts one that's not for a few years that he changes the name. this is the Japan one with Russia Kimura and Akira Maeda who dutch mantel i think was working against during his time over there just really kind of funny you don't think of dutch mantel as like as somebody that would be working in the shoot style promotion you just think of him as one of the archetypes of southern wrestling i mean if you had to name 10 southern wrestlers dutch mantel probably going to be in that 10 but the while i've been gone
0: i've been thinking about one man ox baker the big goof now you know i've laid awake at night and i've had nightmares that big ugly face looking down on me and a couple weeks ago he hit me with a heart punch but let me say one thing the only reason he really got me with that heart punch in the first place is because jimmy hart distracted me and i think i can run from that heart punch long enough so he can't hit me with it but he got me with it baby and it's like a 10 ton truck hitting you hit you right there Mm. and baby i
2: saw stars and it hurt Back in the 70s, there were a couple of guys who received the heart punch from Ox Baker in a match and then died shortly thereafter. Uh, Alberto Torres was one of them very early in the decade. He died like three days after the match, but it was kind of chalked up to other causes as well. Then the following year, 1972, Ray Gunkel collapsed and died in the locker room after the bout. But apparently he had heart disease as part of the autopsy. But you know, shaking up the heart with the heart punch probably did not help. But what this meant was that Ox Baker could go around saying, well, yeah, my finishing move literally killed the guy. And that, That's probably what comedians want to do. Like, you literally want to kill, but may, maybe you want to take care of your opponent but I guess with a heart punch it can be a little bit more difficult that's why you probably haven't seen that move in the last 30 or so years I guess Crush was using it less than 30 years ago but it's not something you see very often this Oxbaker Dutch Tell feud just a little program in Memphis around this time you look up the results which I know can be a little bit spotty it looks like they only faced off once after this point which would be May 8th in Louisville Ox, I don't think, had a lot of bouts in him at this point in his career. He turned 50 years old in 1984, and he was always one of those Wilford Brimley and Cocoon guys who kind of looked older than he actually was. And with him being 50 or turning 50 in that year, he's not exactly Nick Bockwinkle in the ring where, oh, he turned 50? Oh, that just means he's got another, you know, 10 good years left. (laughs) Like with Nick Bockwinkle, although I guess Bock retired at about 55 or something. 53, I think it was, in 1987. All I'm saying is Ox Baker, not Nick Bockwinkle, which is the most duh statement I've ever made on this podcast. When I was looking up the American Top 40 for this date in 1984, I was curious how many Michael Jackson songs were going to be on there. And the answer is actually zero. Thriller had come out 18 months before, but I mean, that thing had some shelf life to it. He technically, I guess, was in the top 40 at number 11 because he was the whole reason why Rockwell's song, Somebody's Watching Me, his background vocals was the reason why it made it as high as it was. That was at number 11. Now, the PYTs, Coco Ware and Norvell Austin, are named for a different song off Thriller called PYT, Pretty Young Thing, is what that stands for. It's track eight on the album. And I don't want to say it was an overlooked song in retrospect. I mean, most people think of Billie Jean. They think of the title track Thriller itself. But I love PYT. It's such a great song. And I have to remind you that back in those days, Pretty Young Thing he's referring to a young woman okay none of that stuff had been going on with Macaulay Culkin and all, all, all the stuff that was going on at Neverland Ranch we didn't know about that in 1984 so it, we know what he meant and he meant a very specific thing thank God because it probably wouldn't have become as popular as it did and United America and single-handedly dragged us out of the recession of 1982 because the album sales of Thriller and I guess later Born in the USA kind of you know tagging along in in 84 kind of lifting the economy in that way so we know about Coco Ware I've spoken about my admiration for him but Norvell Austin haven't really gotten to talk about what about this other guy who is in the Eddie Murphy style red suit from the Delirious album Uh, Austin had been around since the 1960s wrestling mainly in the south and he's kind of. He was in a groundbreaking heel team with Sputnik Monroe in the early seventies. It was a like, groundbreaking because, once again, the way African Americans were treated in wrestling at that time was they would generally either wrestle each other or they would be the baby faces and they would not cheat during matches because everything had to be done a certain way in the South at that time. By nineteen eighty, he was known as the junkyard dog. So, Sylvester Ritter, not the original guy by that name. Of course, he's Big Daddy Ritter up in Stampede and wherever for making his way down to Georgia and Louisiana. But Norval Austin went by that name first. Then, finally, he becomes part of the Midnight Express. After feuding with them, eventually he turns on his tag team partner, becomes a member of the Midnight Express. as a three-man unit with Randy Rose and Dennis Condry, who... course would have that feud in 88 that I alluded to a couple of weeks ago as the original Midnight Express overall a very consequential dude whose contributions to wrestling might get overlooked especially since WWE he was never really there so his contribution obviously they're not going to you know put him over as some sort of great hero and icon because They write the history, unless, of course, it's to serve their own purposes. Which, by the way, that Ruthless Aggression documentary, I tried to give it a shot watching it on the network. I know the second episode dropped earlier this week, and I made it through the first 11 minutes, and then my wife came home, and I might as well have German pornography on if, you know, I'm watching wrestling. I have to, you know, turn it off right away, but I was more than happy to turn it off because, Who the hell decided that Michael Rappaport was the guy to narrate this, okay? This is not exactly the greatest era in your history where you're bleeding viewers at the time, but you're also going to have freaking Michael Rappaport do this? Why don't you just spend the money and get Liev Schreiber, okay? Why can't you do that? Oh, no, we got to have Michael Rappaport, who... Despite being in one of my favorite shows from, like, the year 2000, 2001, that time period, Boston Public, he was, like, my least favorite character on that show, even though his accent... You know, kind of aligned to the Boston Exit Personally, give me Chai McBride any day of the week Because his Boston Exit showed that he was really trying I wasn't too offended by any of it But I'm offended by the fact that Michael Rappaport is the guy that you're going to choose to narrate this I would rather watch five Shawn Michaels booked main events in NXT over that You understand what I'm saying? If you listen to the intro, obviously you do Anyway, I got to do a Memphis show at some point where it's Coco Ware and his earlier team with Bobby Eaton. Because I believe Jim Cornette said that that was actually Eaton's best tag team. Maybe it was somebody else who said that. Coco Ware and Bobby Eaton just sounds like an amazing team. And for whatever reason, I've never gotten to that in my viewing. The AWA Southern tag team titles, I mentioned how that was a hot potato they had previously won the titles once, and they would win it two more times after this because they were a pretty long-standing team into 1985. as We start out with Bob Reed. Uh, they're facing off against Robert Reed and David Johnson. And Robert Reed, immediately, I'm thinking, oh, it's the guy from the Brady Bunch? Like, no, no, it's definitely... <laughs> by the way, books on the Brady Bunch, I'm, I'm fascinated by that show, having grown up watching it. The, the Greg Brady book, Barry Williams wrote one in 1992 called Growing Up Brady. I believe that should be taught in our public schools. I, I love that book, especially because Robert Reed was such an asshole to the producers. And granted, I know it was all slapstick and all. And Sherwood Schwartz, not exactly the greatest writer or producer in the world. I mean, Gilligan's Island is pretty much dreck. I mean, it's fun, but come on Robert Reed wrote like these long lengthy letters about like I am a Shakespearean actor and I will not do this and he didn't even appear in the last episode anyway completely different Robert Reed who's the job guy in this match now Coco he's actually called Stagger Lee by Lance Russell It's kind of an alter ego because he appeared as Stagger under a mask and believe that masked persona ended up turning Coco heel at a particular point in time. Maybe I'll do an episode on that someday. Who, Who knows? It starts out with a headbutt, but actually in the corner, because Jimmy Hart is there as well. They are members of the first family. They were there for the big speech earlier on. Jimmy Hart, so ahead of his time when it comes to music and wrestling, and so are the PYTs. Michael Jackson imitator
3: got a uh, they've got a tape back running over in their corner I hear the music over there I guess a little little inspiration for them uh, Coco, give, you give can see Coco
0: with the tape there.
3: <laughs>
0: big clothesline Robert Reed hits the, louder, the music the meaner and rougher the PYT Express kid I'm thinking, to turn it up a little bit loud
1: oh fine Jimmy David Johnson hits the deck PYT
2: Kind of funny that they're playing Thriller instead of P.Y.T. considering it's the name of the team that they are. And I guess P.Y.T. would be more something more befitting of a babyface team. But yes. The gangsters they were not first African-American team to play music all throughout their matches. Here, the PYTs are doing it in Memphis in 1984 because they're always innovating there. And Johnson gets into the ring, as you heard on the play-by-play. As as thriller as play, I almost think that it's like WWF Championship Wrestling since that had just become the theme song of that the month before this. Video quality isn't all that great, but I get a look at David Johnson's trunks, and on the back of it, it says show and tell. Now, I don't know what the hell he's getting at with that, but I'm going to stay as far away from him as possible as a vertical suplex by Coco Ware. I thought he was going to go for the brain buster, which would be known as the Ghostbuster in the WWF, but I guess not. Slam and a big elbow drop by Norvell Austin. And Coco actually finishes off this match an Irish whip and a belly to belly suplex. That was something that I'd never really seen from him. This is a cool ass team. These two guys, Coco and Norvel Austin, which is why I need to go back and see more Coco. Coco and Bobby Eaton. I got to see those two guys together. Just, or, or more of the PYTs. So clearly my vow to watch more Memphis is now just seeing certain elements of it. It's like, yes, I, I demand more of it. And they actually, on their way to the back of course you're in a little studio so stuff like this is gonna happen but they make it funny where they got the boom box it coco does on his shoulder and they march past lance and dave who are just kind of sitting at the desk you know talking into the camera and they walk by in front almost like it's the energizer bunny <laughs> just some really really funny stuff and, uh- And that song by John Mellencamp was climbing up the charts that week in 1984. It's at number 19 up three spots from the prior week. But I want to use this to point to what I called the perfect tweet sequence a few weeks ago. It's actually on my civilian account where uh, it's kind of different follows than on the podcast account. Now, the original tweet that is there is actually from John Mellencamp. And it reads as follows. I was born in a small town, and I live in a small town, but the reality is small-town America is disappearing, and at Mike Bloomberg, will fight for them, and then there's a YouTube link, and it's just like roll-your-eyes sort of stuff, and the author, Jesse Walker, subtweets this, and above that, it says, this is kind of ridiculous and awful, of course. That is how I ended up seeing it. But the first reply from somebody, Scott Stein, at S. Stein, says, Authority always wins. And I was just like, bravo. You know, Twitter is a complete cesspool, but occasionally it comes up big in a spot like that. And we have another music video up next, which is Harley Davidson and Dirty Roads. And it's set to Let's Hear It for the Boy by, I think it's Denise Williams, who did that song around that time. It, not a whole lot going on, but it is interesting for those of you who don't know who Harley Davidson is. That is Hillbilly Jim. And in fact, you see him playing guitar in one shot on that kind of a foreshadowing of his music career that would come in the WWF by the end of the following year 1985 on the wrestling album which by the way i just need to buy the vinyl of that because the last spot on my wall is waiting for that album to be put up there because uh, i i like it because it, i like albums that have a lot of people on it i don't know if it's the sergeant peppers thing which by the way isn't on my wall but uh I, I like albums with a lot of people like i have turnstiles by billy joel but it's not my favorite billy joel album i just like it because there's people on there now, as for Dirty Roads, like, what is Dirty Roads? It sounds like a knockoff of Dusty Roads, and you would be correct. That is exactly what it is. He's kind of like Dusty Roads at about 85 to 90% size, so he's not quite as rotund as Big Dust, but this guy is Roger Smith, who was an assassin at one point. I am not. I don't mean like a guy who shot somebody. I mean he was an assassin, one of the guys under a mask along, you know, the team, the assassins is what I'm saying. So there's really not too much I can comment on the music video. It's just kind of the same stuff that we saw with Bugsy earlier, although a little bit less entertaining, except for it's interesting to see Hillbilly Jim previous to his WWF work and but we're actually going to see them coming up a little bit later as we get the first family out for their tag match and but first they're going to stop by and say a few words with Lance and Dave at the desk and starting out with Ox Baker I'm not really too interested in what he has to say like I said he's up there in years but Jim the Anvil Neidhart who's a, a true you know team player with You'd see it in the Hart Foundation. He lifted up Brett in that team because he was the crazy guy with personality. He gave life to that team. Brett Hart, singles wrestler, world champion, doesn't happen without Jim the Anvil Nightheart, crazy dude, in the Hart Foundation. But here, the Anvil is sticking up for fellow family member Rick Rude, who's, as I said, he's hit a bit of a rough patch.
3: I want everyone to shut up! I want everyone to shut up! Listen to what I have to say. Some very unfortunate circumstances have happened to my good friend, Rick Rude. (laughs) Shut up! up! (laughs) Because of that pencil neck, little pimple face, awesome idol, and this hick Something. Austin. He, he comes out here, he humiliates me, and then he says he's gonna wash his hands. I'm gonna tell you something. I'm gonna tell. I'm gonna tell all you filthy hillbilly something. Austin Egghead, you haven't washed your hands of nobody, and it might not be today, and it might not be tomorrow. But next time I get my hands on you, brother, next time will be the last time, and it's gonna be real good
2: before watching the show I did not drill too deep on what Rick Rude was doing and where where his head was at at the time that this show aired I knew that he was in a feud with Austin Idol because hell I have another Memphis show in the queue from March of 84 and the screen cap is Austin Idol and Rick Rude you know facing off in the studio but yes, he's wearing a dress, not unlike Brian Pillman in September of nineteen ninety seven. Unfortunately, right before he passed away. And of course Rick Rude we lost way too soon in nineteen ninety nine as well. So Apparently, there's some sort of stipulation where Rude had to wear a dress for a period of time because I can't imagine why he would just wear this. You know, uh, he's embarrassed by it clearly. But I like that Neidhart is sticking up for him. He's really standing up for his friend. He's a he's a guy that I've certainly appreciated his character work a lot more over the last three years of doing this show. Now, the actual match itself that it this one is a an eight man tag. Which I didn't even know who the fourth guy was with the first family. It's Rick Rude, Ox Baker, Jimmy Anvil, Nightheart, and the Japanese assassin. And I was scratching my head and I went to look it up and I could not figure out who this person is. You do a search for Japanese assassin, it's so vague that you start getting World War II stuff and like who who is this and eventually I'm like you know I have to move on with my life I cannot you know sit here and waste 25 minutes trying to figure out who the fourth guy in an 8 man tag is in Memphis in 1984 the opponents are Keith Eric, the fake tiger mask which to talk about a face palm and a, another misfire by Memphis having a fake tiger mask and having Ken Wayne under the mask no it's not Satoru Sayama for God's sake you think he's coming into Memphis and you might as well think again I don't even know who the other people are. It really doesn't matter. I mean, they, they just start killing Keith Eric right off the go. He's, a, he's definitely a veteran of Memphis wrestling. Tiger Mask is in, and I'm just so embarrassed by the fact that this is a thing that exists. We get kind of a half power slam. I didn't even wrote who it, write who it is because I became immediately distracted by, now, the third person identified on the enhancement side is Bob Reed again the guys do a double duty lost in that bout earlier the tag team match so figure okay we'll be one of the four guys who stands up on the apron and I have absolutely no idea who the Japanese assassin is I guess there are people I could have reached out to on this but maybe somebody will reach out and tell me who it is I mean I don't know if it's I I I think if it's somebody of consequence it would have come up in in my search I mean I looked enough to kind of figure it out as Keith Eric is in to spare Reed from his second beating of the day Neidhart hits the power slam and I think okay well that's going to end this match that was his finisher for many many years but he pulls the man up why why does Neidhart do something like that it's so he can tag his good buddy Rick Rude to give him the confidence boost who comes in and hits not the Rude Awakening neckbreaker but a swinging neckbreaker so more honky tonk man style more Mass Superstar style and that picks up the three count. What a, what a guy the Anvil is. Letting the guy who needed the boost in his life get the pinfall in this one. These guys, this is why they are the first family. They are a family. And it's nice to see Anvil and Rude together collaborating on this. Cause Ox Baker's a weird looking dude. And you get the Japanese assassin who's wearing a mask. Anvil and Rick Rude are the two normals in this group. And Neidhart was always a bit off-kilter, so to call him normal is kind of funny.
1: We'll be looking at a one, two, three. Big ball coming up to the ring right now. We're just going to keep on going, Dave. Yep. And an eight-man. Let's go with a six-man, six-man right here. Yeah. Oh, here comes Harley and Dirty. My golly, people love to see them coming in. Dirty hopping through, and he's going after the grappler.
2: This show's going at a pretty good pace. You get an eight-man tag, and now all of a sudden you get a six-man tag. So you figure that's 14 people from the roster, unless, of course, they're reusing Robert Reed for a third time on the same show. But in this one, we got the team of Dirty Roads, Harley-Davidson, and Brickhouse Brown. Seems like an odd combination. Until you consider what's on the other side, the Pink Panther, the Grappler, and the Black Scorpion. Now, if you just take it on names alone, it's like, oh, okay. The Pink Panther, Black Scorpion. Of course, that's much more notorious for 1990 WCW. Absolutely no relation to it whatsoever. Memphis apparently has two dirties between Mantel and Dirty Roads. And there's really no time for the intros here. As di- Dirty Roads, I-, I was wonder- wondering where his giant elbow pad is. And I didn't see it at first, but yes, in fact it is there. Because Dirty Rhodes is a kind of it's kind of like having an Elvis impersonator, except you had a Dusty Rhodes impersonator. That's pretty much how it was done in professional wrestling back in the day. As I said, he's about eighty to ninety percent the size of Dusty, so a reasonable facsimile. You're not gonna get, you know, all of the charisma you'd get of a Dusty Rhodes. But if you think about it, if Roger Smith, who is the guy who plays dirty roads if he's if he's bringing in half as much money then you only have to pay him half as much as you would have to pay dusty probably much less than that i would think because dusty Rhodes would command a premium i don't know maybe somebody should break down the numbers <laughs> on hiring the imitator versus the real guy and he controls on the grappler early then we get a couple tags out we got the black scorpion and brick house brown who is very new to memphis at this point this is unlike 1988 where he was pretty established he bounced around in 1984 brick house brown did he went from in one year jcp at the beginning of the year into memphis for this second quarter of the year then he ends up in florida for a while and then he ends up in mid-south which seems like the natural order of things because bill watts well, obviously always wants an african-american superstar and by the end of 1984 he had lost the junkyard dog and you got butch reed there but he probably wanted to hedge his bets a little bit since sometimes butch reed could be a little flaky backbreaker and you're not going to believe it but a back elbow is executed in this match <laughs> yet again so harley davidson of course hillbilly jim by the way, his beard game, I don't think people talk about it enough because we're usually more fixated on how much a nice guy Hillbilly Jim is outside the ring. But his beard is unbelievable. It's like the when Peter Griffin had like the family of birds in the, one of those early season Family Guy you know, before the show just became completely freaking unbearable. People talk about The Simpsons and that show running too long. Excuse me, can we point the finger at Family Guy, especially considering that they did like several seasons of cleveland show and America dad which are basically the same thing how come people don't complain about that people will rip on the simpsons without ever having actually seen the episodes in the last 10 to 15 years so like family guy it's like why does this have to still be on tv i i, I don't know they, they're like oh we can kill off brian and then they bring him back two weeks later like give me a break I, I don't I don't like Family Guy anymore. I, I haven't watched that show in about seven years. But I do like some of the bits. I mean, I've played them for drops. Anyway, where was I? Oh, yeah, Harley Davidson's beard. So he looks like Hillbilly Jim, except he's wearing trunks, which is extremely disconcerting. Usually I like to see these guys, you know, in the kind of before-they-were-famous phase. That's why I'm going to do a Memphis episode from 79, because it's got Hulk Hogan and Brutus Beefcake Hillbilly Jim wearing tr- trunks. I, I'm not sure I really want to see that. I want to see him in those farmer, quote unquote, farmer pants, as Jesse Ventura called the bib overalls. It just, it just feels right. Like that gimmick felt like it was a proper match for what he was bringing to the table. And by the way, he's just like standing on the apron there, and it's just really getting into my head. As the Pink Panther is in looking to maybe sell some owens corning insulation but Brickhouse brown ends up taking him down now harley davidson when he gets in there and i can see why you'd have a problem with that name on a larger stage because i think the motorcycle company might be like yeah you can't use that name anymore i mean after all hog wild had to be changed the after that first year to road wild so i think they would want to protect their trademarks on that one he looks a lot like john nord marching around the ring Uh, two slams so very very basic stuff and then when Dirty Rhodes gets in there you're not going to believe this but he does a back elbow (laughs) I'm sorry I don't know why this is a show that's going to break me in terms of the back elbow and a side backbreaker by Harley who is back in there again on the Pink Panther so I guess he's not uh, interested in any insulation for Mudlick Kentucky or whatever and that is actually how this match i thought was going to finish up because we go to a promo for evansville which gets cut off immediately i alluded to that earlier i think where a lot of the promos got cut out and it seems that this match is a tv time limit remaining for a second i thought we're having a two out of three falls match with this crew of six guys but no this is you can score as many falls as you want to tv time remaining. But it might be a de facto two out of three falls match given, you know, you might see two falls, three at the absolute most. And Harley is in there. I should call him Davidson because calling him Harley, it's like, no, it's one Harley, it's Harley Race. He tosses down the grappler and he wants a test of strength and the grappler looks at him like this big tall 300 pound dude. Like, no, I don't think I'm going to be doing that. I made the reference a minute ago to Hillbilly Jim, Harley Davidson, being from Mudlick, Kentucky. But, of course, I've already established many episodes ago that Mudlick, Kentucky is completely fake as a kayfabe hotel. That's not a real place. They do not make and store bourbon there in any way. So I'm wondering, okay, well, where is Harley Davidson from? Is he from Milwaukee? Dave Brown had some insight on that. Big Harley Davidson says he's from everywhere. So if he's from everywhere, I guess that answers the question that people have had, including me, about how he kept showing up at WWF TV tapings later in 1984 before he came out of the crowd to debut, whether it's at the All-Star tapings in Canada or Poughkeepsie. For the championship wrestling tapings I, I don't know, I guess maybe that, that, That's an answer that we can carry Across promotions Another thing that I noticed about Harley Davidson's Trunks is they got a little lightning bolt On them, so once again, that guy Who made those trunks that Don Morocco Would get, Tito Santana That guy was making bank in the mid-80s And we get a big kick out from Harley Davidson Kind of showing off the strength and Again, he wants another test of strength With the grappler who actually obliges this time and just it, Harley just kind of toys with him a little bit as he brings the hands down to the mat, Harley does and then just kind of steps on them tagged to Dirty Rhodes who does, I, this is where I noticed that he does have the elbow pad and slips out of a headlock he does a lot of that ass shaking stuff to, to tell us that we he has a rather large hiney gets caught in a full Nelson and then theatrically gets out of it as we get three minutes left to the time limit and I just wrote mercy because there's not a lot of great wrestling going on in this match and I've kind of said all I can say about everybody involved so I'd really love to bring this home but Brickhouse Brown hits a running drop kick a corner whip and a real it looked like a botch where Brickhouse was going for a head scissors and just kind of missed it went airborne over the top rope so the heel team gets a little bit of control for like the first time in this match. A head to the turnbuckle, but because Brickhouse Brown is African American and we've still got racist stereotypes in wrestling, that doesn't work. A drop kick misses on Brown, but the grappler go a drop kick by Brickhouse misses and then grappler misses an elbow. So Brickhouse just by the way black scorpion now gets in there and he just gets pinned right away i mean i i you want me to make sense out of what's going on here a memphis six man with like the most random six people you could find this, this is literally like a battle ball six man for memphis 1984 but i mean i i have no real issues with it and again it's got nothing to do with the wcw black scorpion it's just a generic name by the way that's probably one of the uh unspoken things about could they have come up with a better name than black scorpion yes i know sting had a scorpion on his tights and that's why they were doing that it's just just strikes me as such a bland name like like black bart like uh, yeah i guess you know he worked across various promotions crockett world class but black bart is just so so generic i mean it's the name of one of the bad guys that ralphie shoots in a christmas story anyway we uh, at the end of the show we get Dave Brown for whatever reason it feels like everything was kind of ill-timed because Dave's got to kill some time doing that the thing that Conan O'Brien I saw he he said that one piece of advice he was given by Johnny Carson and I like to do this as well on this podcast is tell the audience what you're going to do go out and do what you said you were going to do and then at the end, tell them what you just did, and that's pretty much what Dave is recapping on the show. I don't know. I don't know why I'm vamping so much. It's not like I'm up against the time limit like they are.
1: We got the last break in. indeed. Bye, bye. See you next week.
2: What a lot of weird production stuff happened on this show. I know at the top, I don't think I mentioned this, where Lance Russell had the microphone cord, it got a little tangled, and it took him a second after to come, come back on the air to get it all right. And now this, they barely get in the last commercial, and they have to like just say bye in like five seconds left in the show. It's like when I'm at a hockey game, and I'm not sure if people are aware of this, watching hockey, but there is there is a timing for when the commercials air, and it's the like the last commercial break of the game is the first whistle that's not after a goal or an icing after six minutes left, and it's got to be five fifty nine and there are instances where you know you won't get a whistle to stop play or you'll just be a bunch of icings or a goal or whatever and you won't get that last commercial break in and NBC will end up getting screwed out of it that's kind of what happened here with the show and like at some points it seemed rushed and at other points it was like stuff was dragging on I don't know why we had to do two falls there at the end but hey That is it. I enjoyed it, you know, just as much as I would any other Memphis episode. And that'll do it for Memphis Wrestling for April 28th, 1984. (music) Before I go into my usual podcast plugs, I would be remiss if I forgot to mention that I will be on the Place to Be podcast next week on Monday, we talk talking Saturday night's main event from July of 1990, and I'm, I'm salivating over that one, because you know how much I love Buddy Rose from the Portland episode that I did over the summer, well... Buddy Rose is on that one against a newcomer to the World Wrestling Federation as it turns out and there's a great Mr. Perfect versus Tito Santana match for the Intercontinental title as well and there will be a long segment on the Herb Coon's tidbits which I've particularly enjoyed the last few times that I have been on that show. Now another podcast I also recorded last week with my good pal Steve Bennett uh, of the sportscasters that is the new Adams Division podcast will be coming soon on the first 14 WrestleManias a cousin of the one we did a couple of years ago ranking the first 14 this one is we are putting together 10 matches using the first 14 WrestleManias and you're not allowed to use any title more than once and you're not allowed to use any wrestler more than once so if you're going to use Randy Savage well you can use him versus Steamboat, you can use him versus Flair, but you can't do both. And you can't use him for the world title more than once. That's basically the simple rule of it. So we've recorded half of that, and we will be recording the other half of that pretty soon. And on the Sportscasters, Steve has Greg Washinsky of ESPN.com talking the NHL including some Buffalo Sabres, which uh, I, I would advise if, you know, it is a little depressing to discuss that team. So. But a lot of goings on as we approach the trade deadline in the National Hockey League. Now, on the Wrestling Podcast About Nothing, they're in episode 199 this week. and It is a very interesting thing to tune in and hear brawler Brian Malonis hosting it solo as Brian Fury and Mike Crockett. I, I don't know where they are. But Malone is smooth as hell recording by himself for, like, the first 25 minutes. Pretty excellent job. You know, a lot of people say to me, how the hell are you able to podcast by yourself? And the answer is I I just really like to talk into a microphone in a basement by myself. And I figure wrestling is a good outlet for it. But, (laughs) yeah, good job by him as he threw it to some old clips of Mike Crockett doing bad things on the podcast. Some of his worst bits in segments which got me thinking what's the worst bit or segment that i've done on this podcast i don't want to say that i've had a lot of misses but uh, i don't know I'm i'm trying to think back like i remember when i did that sunny show the wwf mania from 96 i did not like the way that episode came out but that was a long time ago and i don't even remember why it was that i didn't like it so Who who really knows? Maybe somebody, maybe some wiseacre on Twitter will uh, step up and let me know uh, that I uh, bombed in episode seventy-one or whatever the hell it was. Now on our Vantage Point podcast with Joe Morata and Michael Quinn, they're talking the influence of Piper's Pit and the rise of the talk show segments in professional wrestling during their influencers segment. Piper's Pit definitely the Reggie Jackson. Of talk show segments and the reason for that is well first of all it became fame. Reggie Jackson was a star when he was Oakland but he became truly famous I think you know like world famous once he got to New York and won two world series with the Yankees and Piper kind of the same way he goes up to New York he gets more exposure that way but also it goes into what I've always said about Piper's pit in that there were a lot of home runs hit but he also struck out a lot, and it just devolved into, haha, you wear a skirt, and just stupid stuff like that. But also Reggie Jackson, he, he struck out a lot too. He, I, I don't know if he still has the record for most strikeouts in a career. Anyway, that's probably going to go down with the way guys strike out these days. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of the Reggie Jackson of talk shows, I do declare. Now, for next week's show... I am going to be doing a WWF show. And we got February 29th, Leap Day, coming up. And the most famous wrestling program ever on February 29th. Well, AEW's got a pay per view coming up. But I'd say that it would be Super Brawl 2 from WCW back in February of 1992 would be it. But on that same day, WWF ran an episode of Superstars, which happened to have the last episode of The Funeral Parlor. That ties back to Piper's Pit, where I said that Piper's Pit didn't have the greatest batting average, just like Reggie Jackson didn't have the greatest batting average. I always found that the funeral parlor seemed to have a lot of good hits, and a very high batting average for a segment of its type. Yes, was Paul Bear silly? Yeah, of course he was. That That's the whole freaking ca- character, in my opinion, so... February 29, 1992 edition of Superstars next week on Greetings from Allentown. Before I put this episode to bed, I do think that there is a little bit of time left for another exciting edition of YouTube Comet Theater. And there are eh, probably about a dozen comments on this video that has been up for a couple of years on YouTube. And as always, these are actual YouTube comments left by users on the video in question. Alden R. Davis writes, and apparently this is just informational, official results of Monday night's match on April 30th, 1984 at the Mid-South Coliseum. Jim Nighthart beat Rick McCord. Brickhouse Brown beat A-Team number one. Hmm, I think that would be Steve Bennett's favorite tag team of all time. Scott Shannon and Bugsy McGraw beat Ox Baker and the Japanese Assassin. P- PYT Express beat Dirty Rhodes and Harley Davidson in a motorcycle boot on a pole match. Jeez, I, so those did not start with Vince <laughs> Russo. Uh, Dutch Mantel beat Rick Rude by DQ. Eddie Gilbert and Tommy Rich, the new fabulous ones, beat Pork Chop Cash and Mark Batten, Jimmy Hart's fabulous ones via DQ. Austin Idol beat international champ Randy Savage via DQ. I didn't know if Savage had a belt because Jimmy Hart said that he didn't. And in the main event, Jerry Lawler beat Southern Champ Lord Humongous via disqualification. That is not Sid Vicious as that Lord Humongous. He wouldn't be around till a couple of years later. Alden later adds in the comments, Tommy Rich and Eddie Gilbert had little success as the new Fabulous Ones, a.k.a. Fargo's Fabulous Ones. And yeah, it kind of damaged Jackie Fargo's reputation to attach his name to it. So the next time they would trot him out for something maybe it wouldn't work quite as well because it kind of harms his credibility trey staten says jimmy hart is a great manager of all time i think he meant to say greatest manager of all time and anybody who watches memphis from this time period would definitely be of the opinion that jimmy hart should be higher on the all-time list because he's just fantastic in these spots Lervey, nineteen sixty three says pretty young things, Coco Beware and Norvell Austin looked like they were doing a dance and a wrestling match against the two jobbers. It was nineteen eighty four. I don't know if that's just a reference to that was the style of dance for nineteen eighty four or what he's getting at, but yeah, they were a cool team. I really liked watching them. Joanne Brandon says The Mid South Coliseum used to love to go there, great place. And as far as I know, it is still standing. I've never actually been to Memphis except for driving through there while moving from virginia to nevada and it's not like i stopped and got out of the car anywhere buddy robinson said tommy rich and Eddie gilbert were a good tag team but obviously had the wrong name if they had had another name their tag team would have lasted longer maybe they should have just called themselves the original fantastics to go back to what i was saying earlier i mean who would have that wasn't the worst name in the world for a tag team benjamin Sisley says who's the assassin and yeah i don't know who the japanese assassin is absolutely no idea and Aldenar davis once again weighs in the japanese assassin looked just like the black ninja well i'm sorry i'm not going to go on a wild goose chase to try to figure out who the hell the black ninja is and then finally kevin caldwell says and this leads to an exchange who's the white dude doing a bad impression of dusty roads And Tarek Tannen says, Dirty Roads, more famous in Memphis for tagging under masks. And then Alden Davis weighs in again. Roger Smith, known as Dirty Roads, resembled the American dream, Dusty Roads. That'll do it for YouTube Comment Theater. All right, so I've checked off everything on my list that I need to do to wrap up the show, but if you could do me one solid between this and the next show. Leave a five-star review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called, or wherever the finest podcast reviews are taken and accepted. You know why? Because it provides what is known as social proof that you are listening to and enjoying this podcast. And I've noticed the numbers ticked up on iTunes. I don't know if it's my delivery of this imploring you to leave a five-star review, but I thank each and every one of you who has gone and done that. I certainly appreciate that. I really enjoy doing this podcast on a weekly basis because it does help focus my wrestling watching and it doesn't seem like i'm getting too much into the newer product given that uh the ruthless aggression doc and my opinion on that earlier so uh, i think i've said enough in the intro i don't want to have to bleep myself again because that gets a little time consuming so that is it for me this week do tune in next thursday for another exciting episode of greetings from allentown
0: everybody knows five ways of cancer baby five ways and the number one way of catching cancer is when you get a bruise or or, or a lump on you man